Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal me. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And we have a new, not a new tab, but we have on our website, huntinghistorypodcast.com. Under the follow us tab, there'll be a link to fill out your name and email address. And that puts you in our database to get emails about what's going on, story updates, where we are when we're missing, just all kinds of information about Hunting History Podcast contests we have going on, right? Yeah. So go to our website, huntinghistorypodcast.com, click on follow us, and enter your email address so that you can stay abreast of anything that's going on. Webster's Dictionary's definition of the word legend says, a traditional story sometimes popularly regarded as historical, but is unauthenticated. Being a historical true crime podcast, so many times the stories that we tell are mired in A century-old game of telephone. Somewhere in the story is the truth. It's a lot like genealogy. Somewhere in the story is the truth, but sadly, we never know how much of the truth of the story gets documented and shared, particularly when we talk about something that happened 200 years ago. This week's episode is a story that exemplifies that. The legend of Lavina Fisher is so old, it's hard to know what's true and what parts just became a campfire story. Many believed, and the tour guides would want you to believe, that Lavina Fisher is the first recorded woman serial killer. But is that even close to the truth? What is in question is that Lavina was executed for her crimes. What those crimes were is what created the legend itself. During the early 1800s in Charleston, South Carolina, which... I want to go there. I know. I do, too. Oh, you do? Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Why Why Charleston? I just want to go to South Carolina. Why do I not know this? I don't know. Every time I say I want to go somewhere, you're like, nope, California. Well, move there. No, probably not. Why? But go there. Sure. That's weird to me because last night you were really impressed with your cousin just up and moved to Ohio and you were kind of impressed with the fact that he did that. Oh, yeah. To have the balls to do it, but I'm not leaving California. <laughs> why not? <laughs> California sucks in so many ways. I mean, it's amazing in some ways. I mean, they always say like you can surf and ski the same day, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. How many times have you done that? In the same day. How many times have you done that? In the same year, I have multiple times. I know, but see, that's the point. To a lot of places have skiing. A lot of people have. A lot of places have beaches. Like yeah, but I can. We don't get to the beach in less than an hour. I can get to mountains in less than an hour. I don't, I don't know. I just, there's so many things wrong with California. The crowds, for one thing. The traffic. The yeah, but I was, it's, I'm just so used to it. I just, it's life. You want to try someplace else, though, someday, don't you? Mm. Me. I don't know. So you just want to go visit South Carolina? Yeah, I want to visit lots of places. One of them is South Carolina. I wonder how long the flight is to South Carolina. That's far. I think it's like six hours. No. No. You can't do that. Like, I can't even come close to thinking of being on a plane for six hours. Yeah. Well, like, three and a half. How long is it to Wisconsin? Almost four. Four? It sucked so bad. I don't want to do that. Anyways, during the early 1800s in Charleston, South Carolina, wagon train in and out of the city was a profitable and big part of the city's economy. Also, many travelers and salesmen relied on boarding houses and inns and really just regular people's homes along their routes for places to rest, eat a meal before continuing on their journey. It's not like now where you can pull into McDonald's and use the bathroom. Back then they had to stop at inns or 
boarding houses. In 1819, trade was disrupted by a gang of highwaymen stopping wagons on the road and stealing goods and money. Do you know what a highwayman is? No, I don't. Do they, you don't remember talking about that in school? I mean, it's a really common phrase for like the old West and I don't remember much of anything from history class, to be honest. Really? Yeah. It, was it your least favorite subject? Yeah, and it was my worst. Is it now? Yes. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> you do a history podcast with me. Well, I don't do any of the research. I just listen to you. But you like the stories, mm-hmm. though. But you know when you want to hear something really interesting? What? History was my worst subject in high school. It wasn't until I got to college that I really, really discovered my love for history. But when I was in high school, actually, I had to go to night school for my history class because I couldn't pass it. Mm-mm. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I love it now. I was kind of hoping you might find your way there. It's not looking like it. But, I mean, you don't like the history, like the the old, like, remembering dates of wars and things like that. Yeah, no. But Stories as as, of history, yeah, but having to, like, the technical stuff of history, no, no. Well, Highwayman but, is um, a robber who rode on horseback either alone or in a small group. And I, it's important that you know that because I'm going to use the term a lot. But it was considered a capital offense back in the 1800s. Traveling salesmen also started disappearing with their last known location being just outside Charleston. Since the victims were unable to identify their robbers, the authorities were powerless to act. The six-mile Wayfair house, which was located six miles out of Charleston, South Carolina, hence the name, was traced to be one of the last places that many of the missing men had been last seen in nearby where the wagons were robbed. A hotel slash boarding house is where many of the traveling men would stay or stop for refreshments. The Six Mile Inn and the aptly named Five Mile Inn, located obviously only a mile apart and both of them being six miles and five miles outside of Charleston, were somehow connected either because of proximity or because the owners knew each other. Either way, the Six Mile Warfare was run by John and Lavina Fisher. The Fishers became suspected for housing the highwaymen who were robbing the wagoneers. Lavina, who cooked, cleaned, and ran the inn, was considered very beautiful. The only thing more appealing than her looks was her charm, making the Wayfair Inn a very inviting place to stay for the lonely traveler. Lavina would warmly welcome the travelers from her wide porch, inviting them in for tea and a rest. The legend goes that Lavina would welcome the wary traveler with a comforting cup of tea and ask them questions to determine whether or not the visitor had any money. The tea laced with oleander, a poison that was not strong enough to kill, but potent enough that it would render the victim sleepier than they already were from their travels. Once the poison took effect, the tired and confused gentleman would be shown to his room. And once there, in a sense, poison-induced sleep, legend has it that John would go in and rob them. Some of the stories say that he oftentimes stabbed and killed them rather than just take their things, with Lavina taking a brutal part in the murders. Rumors swirled that the bed would collapse, dropping the man directly into the basement where John and Lavina would kill them and bury the body. The tales of the amount of men to meet this fate ranged between a dozen and hundreds. A vigilante group, tired of the disappearing travelers and the wagons refusing to come to Charleston because of the stories, went to the Five Mile Inn, one mile closer to town, where they believed that the robbers were staying either here or at the other hotel, but they didn't encounter any of the men. But just to be sure the robbing would end, they burned down the Five Mile Inn and any of the outbuildings. They then put a man named David Ross to watch and stand guard in the Six Mile Inn with the hopes that burning down the Five Mile Inn would convince the gang of robbers to leave the area. But the fishers and the robbers had a different idea. A small group of criminals with Lavina and John went to the Six Mile Inn to find David guarding it. He said that in the early morning hours, he was attacked by the gang of highwaymen 
and the Fishers. David, thinking the woman would be the most sympathetic of the group, pleaded with her to let him go. Rather than help, he said that Levina choked him and smashed his head through a window. He managed to escape and ran to the authorities. While he was making his way back to town, another salesman by the name of John Peoples, who had no idea that the inn was already under some suspicion, came upon the house and inquired of a place to stay for the night. Levina originally informed him that there was no available rooms, probably because she knew that David Ross had escaped and it was only a matter of time before the authorities came back. But he... But she invited the guest in to rest and eat anyways. Peoples, charmed by the beautiful woman, dined and chatted through the evening. Growing suspicious of the questioning, he noticed that John kept staring at him intently. Increasingly suspicious, but also very tired, he was pleasantly surprised when Lavina left to make tea and came back and announced that a room had opened up. Lucky for Peoples, he didn't like tea, and instead of seeming ungrateful or ungentlemanly, he poured it out while no one was looking. The fishers, assuming he had, the fishers, assuming he had drank the tea, showed him to his room, believing that he would be in a deep sleep shortly. But because he was suspicious and he hadn't drank in the tea, he decided to sleep in a chair that he had moved in front of the door. In the middle of the night, he was awakened by the sound of his bed collapsing. Instead of sticking around to determine why or how the bed would fall, he jumped out a window and booked it to town to alert the authorities. Now, with both the men's testimonies, the authorities knew the names of Lavina and John Fisher, and that they were in fact part of or head of the group of robbers. I found a newspaper from an article from a North Carolina paper dated March 5th, 1819. Highway Robbers. His Honor, Judge Kolkak, having issued a bench warrant for the purpose, Colonel Cleary, deputy to his father, the High Sheriff, and a number of other gentlemen, went upon Saturday last for the purpose of arresting and bringing to justice a number of lawless characters who have for some days past been preying upon the in innocent inhabitants of the vicinity of the Five Mile House and upon the weary traveler. How long they have infested the road, we have no idea yet learned but latterly their trepidation i'm using i'm actually reading a newspaper from 1819 so the words are kind of weird were committed with as much apparent fearlessness as though they were commissioned for the purpose the following persons most of who are already identified have been arrested john fisher lavina fisher his wife william hayward james m elray June Howard and Seth Young. Much credit to Colonel Cleary and the gentleman who assisted in the arrest. And you know, this is what this is what I always do. And everybody, I don't know if everybody likes it or doesn't like it. I looked up all these people in um, census records. in In eighteen twenties, women weren't listed by name in census records. It wasn't until I think the eighteen forty census that they started being listed by name. But I did find a John Fisher. And I found a William Hayward, but I couldn't find James Elray, June Howard, or Seth Young. But back earlier in the story, when I mentioned David Ross was guarding the house, I found him listed in the Charleston census. And I found um, Peoples listed in the census record, too. And I don't know why that always makes them seem more real to me. Because we're always telling stories that are so old that the people, you know what I mean? just kind of reminds me of reading a book. Yeah. But when I find them in the census records... They're real people like you it and I. It validates it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I wonder if I should post those on our episode pages too so people can see that these are real people we're talking about or do they just trust me when I say they are? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Weigh in. Feel free to message me. The inn was searched and reportedly filled with hidden passages 
The sheriff claimed to find items that had, could be traced to missing travelers, and a mechanism was uncovered under the bed that triggered the floorboards to open up. It also claimed that as many as 100 sets of remains were found in the basement. I don't know how much of that is true. This is where the legend starts to get a little wonky. Because I would think if I could find a newspaper article about them being arrested, there would be a newspaper article about bodies being found in the basement. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. All of those pleaded, all of those arrested pleaded not guilty. But for some reason, the Fishers were ordered to stay in jail until a trial while the others were let go on bail, most likely because they weren't the ones who actually, you know, ran the inn. Well, it finally, when it finally went to trial, the jury decided against them and found them guilty of highway robbery, a capital offense at the time. They appealed. While they awaited their new trial, they planned an escape. At the time, the couple was housed together in the jail, and the jail itself was not heavily guarded back then. It's a beautiful jail. I'm going to put a picture of it on our episode page, but Google Charleston Old City Jail. It's an amazing building. It's a lot bigger than I would have thought for something that was built in 1803 or something like that. But it wasn't, when they were there, it wasn't heavily guarded. I mean, they kind of just assumed people would stay there when they told them to stay there. But the couple made a rope from jail linens. And on September 13th, 1819, they used the rope to attempt to drop safely and quietly to the ground. And then this is like romantic. John made it out, um, but the rope broke, the linen rope broke as he landed on the ground. So Lavina was stuck in the cell and couldn't get out. It was originally back in, in, 1819, it was actually four stories tall. He wasn't willing to leave without her, so he actually just walked his ass back into the jail and got rearrested and put back in the, in, in the cell. Like, he literally, don't you think that's kind of romantic? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, for murderers and robbers, but... Right. Like, he wouldn't leave her. Yeah. Am I weird that I think that way? No. They were put under stricter security from then on. In February of the next year, the Constitutional Court rejected their appeal, and they were scheduled for execution. Lavina tried to appeal to the court that a married woman was not allowed to be executed, but the judge told her that they would execute her husband first so that she instead would be considered a widow rather than married at the time of the hanging. Like, she literally tried not to be executed. She tried hard. Who wouldn't? I know, but I think her husband kind of accepted his fate. A local minister named Reverend Richard Furman, who, by the way, I found in the 1820 census. Mm Mm-hmm listed as a reverend, which again just amplifies that the story is so real to me. He was sent to counsel the couple. John spoke with the reverend and begged the priest, and probably very likely his own life, um, he wanted the priest to help save his soul. He said, um, Levine, on the other hand, though, was not interested in speaking to him at all, like refused to speak to the reverend. And then on the morning of February 18th, 1820, the Fishers were taken from the Charleston jail to be hanged on the gallows behind the building. John Fisher went quietly praying with the minister, whom he asked to read a letter. Before a crowd of some 2,000 people, which, by the way, is a normal number of attendees for a hanging back in the day, they were considered social events, although some considered it cruel. Many considered them a major community event, and others took them as an opportunity to become unruly, and like now with sporting events or even more currently, protest. Sometimes tens of thousands of eager viewers would show up to view hangings. Local merchants would sell souvenirs and alcohol. Fighting and pushing would often break out as people jockeyed for the best view of the hanging or the corpse. So that would be their big Saturday night is to go watch a hanging. How gross is that? Yeah, I can't imagine. Every social class that did this, it wasn't it wasn't particular or specific to a social class. It was every social class would take part in attending a, a a public hanging. Can you imagine that being 
No. I'm so barbaric. I don't. It's only 200 years ago. It doesn't seem like that long ago that we were doing something so barbaric. Yeah. They said that um, onlookers often cursed the widow or the victim and would try to tear down the scaffold or the rope for keepsakes, depending on how famous the depending on how famous the person was who was being hung. Violence and drunkenness often ruled towns far into the night that justice had been served. The reverend um, did read the letter which insisted on his innocence and asked for mercy for those who had done him wrong in the process. He then began to verbally plead his case before the gathered crowd. But before he was hanged, he asked for their forgiveness. An article from March 13th, 1820 says this, John Fisher and Lavina, his wife, were executed pursuant to the sentence for highway robbery. From the day of their conviction to the hour which terminated their earthly existence, they were attended by several clergy. John Fisher denied that he was guilty of the crime for which he was doomed to suffer, though he admitted he had lived a wicked and abandoned life. He was perfectly resigned to his fate and met it with manly firmness, relying on the mercy and pardon of his Redeemer for his manifold sins, for which he expressed sincere contrition. On the way to the bibbit, he deeply and affectionately occupied in endeavoring to prepare his wife to meet death with fortitude and rely on the promises of the gospel for consolation. Mrs. F., while in prison and on the way to the gallows, evidenced by her conduct, she was impressed with the belief of a pardon and very unwilling to die. Fisher was 29 and his wife 28 years of age. The following is an extract from a letter written by John. In a few moments, the world to hear shall have passed away before the throne of the eternal majesty of heaven. I must stand, shall then, at this dreadful hour, my convulsed and agitated lips, still proclaim a falsehood, no. Then by that awful majesty I answer, I swear I'm innocent. The article goes on to say, a little past two o'clock, the husband and wife embraced each other upon the platform for the last time in this world, and then the fateful signal was given, the drop fell, and they were launched into eternity. Lavina had not gone quietly. She had requested to wear her wedding dress and refused to walk to the gallows and had to be picked up and carried. Before the crowd, she continued to scream pointedly at Charleston socialites who she blamed for encouraging a conviction. Historical records in no way confirm that hundreds of remains were found in the Fisher basement, like I said. It likely would have been in all the papers if there had been. And there, I mean, there were a couple bodies that were dug up on the property when they tore the house down, but nothing to tie the Fisher's to them and most likely an old family cemetery or bodies of people who had died in the area. And according to records, they were never actually even charged with murder. They were only charged with highway robbery. So they were executed for robbery. They were executed for robbery, but somehow over the years, the stories of Lavina taking part in the murdering of the travelers has blown into her being the first serial killer. And there's not a lot of records to say whether that's true or not. So this is like another, like, like family lore. Like there's truth to the story. She was involved somehow. And he even admitted that he led a, what is, what was it? A wicked and wild life that he knew he had done things wrong. But that doesn't necessarily mean murder. No, they, neither one of them ever agreed to that. And then I found online a list of people who were executed in South Carolina and both John and Lavina are listed on this list. It's a really weird list. I don't know why I like morbid stuff like that, but it's a list of all the people that were executed in Charleston, South Carolina. And they're both listed. John and Lavina are listed. And the reason given for on this document is um, murder and robbery. So it's still so up in the air, whether they murdered people or they just robbed people. It's hard to say. Uh, I do know that the information, for the, I don't know where the information for the list came from, so I can't speak to 
its authenticity. But um, I'll put it on our episode webpage so you can take a look at it too. And if you have any ancestors from Southern California, from the South Carolina area who disappeared from census records, you might want to look on there for them too because they were the list is huge of people that were executed in South Carolina. So the thing is, while Fisher is claimed to be the first female serial killer in the United States, it's actually not very likely that she was. There's plenty of newspaper articles written about the Fishers, so they did exist, they did rob, they did get convicted, they did get hung. Um, but there isn't a lot of information about them being murderers. I would think that had they found bodies that they could directly attribute to the couple, it would be literally all over the place. So it's more likely that the title of first woman serial killer actually belongs to Jane Toppin, who we did one of our earlier episodes in. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know anybody wants this title, but I really believe it's Jane Toppin and probably not Lavina Fisher. Um, in the book, Six Miles to Charleston, the true story of John and Lavina Fisher, former investigator Bruce Orr writes that not only were the Fishers innocent, they were actually victims of political corruption. He believes that the whole thing was so the government could take the Fishers' property and use it as a naval base. And now the Charleston Naval Hospital actually sits on the land that was once owned by the Fishers. In the article I read, Bruce Orr, who's the author of the book, states that the Fishers were the only ones convicted, but I found William Hayward on that list of executed people. He's actually on the list also. So he was one of the ones originally arrested with them, and he's on the list of executed people in South Carolina um, for August of 1820. So he was convicted also. I can't find any information on June Howard's Seth Oh, Young or El Ray, if they were convicted or I don't think they were executed, they're not on the list. Uh, so I don't know what happened to them. I tried to find something. Maybe he, maybe Bruce Orr has more of that in his book. I haven't, I wasn't able to read that in time. I say in the opening to our podcast that sometimes the people and the stories in the paranormal meet and we'll share that because who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? This story is an example to that. It's really where they collide. That almost immediately after the execution, people started to report as seeing the face of Lavina in the jail cell windows at night, like staring because she used to sit out the windows and look out during the time that they were in jail. And almost immediately, people thought that they saw her in the windows still. I don't think that's surprising, as they from the time of their arrest until the time they were convicted and hung was literally a year. So they spent a year in that jail. Later, starting in 1886, after the Great Earthquake, which I did not know there was a Great Earthquake in South Carolina. Have you ever heard of that? No. It, in 1886, there was an earthquake that um, happened near Charleston, South Carolina, on August 31st. It left more than 100 people dead and hundreds of buildings destroyed. And it was felt as far away as Boston in Cuba and was the largest recorded earthquake in the history of the southeastern United States. I had no idea. I thought that was something we we're just afraid of in California. Or maybe I'm the only person afraid of everything. Um, but after this earthquake, apparently people started seeing the apparition of Lavina all over town, like between the jail, between where the gallows were, um, the cemetery. People started, I don't know what the earthquake had to do with that, but that's when the, the reports amped up of seeing Lavina everywhere. The jail built in 1802 has gone through several reincarnations and even the top level was removed. Um, the building has a long and violent history, though, and Lavina's ghost is said to be the most terrifying. In 2000, the American College of Building Arts acquired the old city jail building and started working on the stabilization program. Today, the jail is an official Save America's Treasures project, and reports of strange occurrences began with the restoration efforts in 2000. Several people have reported seeing her in her wedding dress, describing her as being bright red or white, which I don't understand what that means. Like her face or her clothes. Yeah, I don't know. And there's actually pictures 
of um like the ghost photography pictures of someone like a woman in white walking on the stairs which i will share links to all the pictures that i could find but i'm sure there's even more um several strange there are reports of strange sounds being heard throughout the building including the hum of a non-operational dumbwaiter and alarms go on and off all the time visitors complain of feeling choked and having shortness of breath others feel grabbed pushed touched and scratched all blamed on lavina Although I don't, I do. They were over sixty hangings that came out of that jail. So yeah, I'm sure a lot of people haunt that place. Yeah, and it was built to only be occupied by 128 people, and sometimes housed over 300. They even uh, hung a lot of pirates there from the Charleston Harbor. So I, the place itself probably retains an ugliness that has nothing to do with Lavina personally, but for some reason she's their most famous ghost. And like any other haunted location, they have doors that open and close. And this is something I don't hear very often. I mean, you hear it, but it's more like of a movie thing. They say that the basement's really warm, but you can see your breath when you're breathing. That's weird. Yeah, no, that one, that one creeped me out a little bit. I want to see it though. I want to see a video. I haven't been able to find a video of that. There are also stories that Lavina haunts the local Unitarian cemetery where some sources say she was buried, but the article, the newspaper articles I read said that she was buried in a potter's field. They didn't say she was buried in that cemetery. But there are tours that are centered specifically on that cemetery and Lavina saying that she haunts that cemetery. I don't know why she would. I mean, if she could go anywhere, why is she haunting the jail in the cemetery? It's a good ghost story, I guess. I, from what I read, that where she was buried in the potter's field, that they moved all those bodies and there's a building on the site now. There are many haunted tours in the Charleston area, most mention Lavina. There are tons of YouTube videos and photos online claiming to be the ghost of Lavina Fisher, and I'll, I will link some on our episode page. Before her executioners could tighten the noose around Lavina's neck, her husband pleaded with her to ask for forgiveness and make her peace with God. She is reported to have said, Cease, I will have none of it. Save your words for others who want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me and I'll carry it. Then before they could pull the lever, Lavina jumped. She was only 28 years old. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.